0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 29. Last week, I worked my way through the Second Intermediate Period of Ancient Egypt, covering the little bit that is known about that period and the coexisting dynasties. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the history of the Hyksos, Canaanite immigrants who ruled a large territory centered in the Delta region during this period, and their story should evoke thoughts of the Israelites as found in Genesis and Exodus. So let's get started. Hyksos is the Egyptian term for the people who ruled a portion of northern Egypt during the Second Intermediate Period. The name itself can be translated from English to the phrase, the rulers of the foreign countries. They were a people of possible mixed origins, probably from Western Asia think Canaan, and the region surrounding it. These immigrants settled in the Eastern Nile Delta sometime before 1650 BC. The large immigration of the Hyksos is largely credited as the reason for the ultimate demise of the 13th dynasty, and therefore the beginning of the Second Intermediate Period. They probably originated from Canaan sometime between 1800 and 1720 BC settling in the eastern portion of the Nile Delta. Now, there was an earlier, smaller group of Asiatic peoples who immigrated to the region around 1900 BC, so between 100 and 200 years earlier. Evidence of this was found on the tomb of a 12th dynasty official, a pharaoh Senusret II. But this first immigration is thought to have been a smaller event. The later migration was much larger. When they first arrived, the Canaanites were probably vassals of the 13th dynasty. Vassals who oversaw a group of Asiatic merchants and shepherds, and who were granted land in the Nile Delta. Okay, so far, sounding really familiar. As their numbers grew, so did their autonomy from the Egyptian Empire. But this was occurring at a time when the Empire's power, in general, was shrinking. Not just at the Delta, over the region as a whole. It was during this period that the Canaanite rulers of the Delta organized and founded the 14th dynasty. The capital of this dynasty was Avaris. This was at the same time as the latter stages of the native Egyptian 13th dynasty. With the collapse of the 13th, the Hyksos were essentially able to declare their independence. But it wasn't quite that simple. By around 1700 B.C., So during the 14th dynasty, Egypt was fragmenting politically, with local kingdoms popping up in the northeastern delta area. One of these smaller kingdoms was that of King Nasi, whose capital was at Avaris. His territory included what was primarily a population of Canaanites, who had settled in the area during the 12th dynasty. This population is thought to have consisted of mostly soldiers, sailors, shipbuilders, and various workers which would make sense in that coastal region. After him was likely a West-Semitic-speaking Canaanite dynasty that would become the 15th, the Hyksos kingdom. More on this in a bit. This kingdom was able to spread to the south, toward Thebes, due to the unstable political situation coupled with their military prowess. Sometime around 1650 BC, the Hyksos invaded the territory of both dynasties and established the 15th dynasty. Outside of this area, the collapse of the 13th caused a power vacuum in the southern portion of Egypt, a vacuum that may have led to the 16th dynasty. This dynasty was based in Thebes. So many coexisting numbered groups, it's sometimes hard to keep track of them all. The Hyksos would eventually conquer this region, and in doing so, capture the city of Thebes. But they would only hold Thebes for a short period the native 17th dynasty would end up regaining Thebes and maintaining a sort of peace with the northern Hyksos. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to the Hyksos and backing up to where they first showed up on the scene. And before I begin, keep in mind that this is the history from the outside, meaning non-biblical, historic record. There are several theories concerning the origin, meaning homeland, of the Hyksos. Often you will see them described as Asiatic, and this is used because that's how the Egyptians thought of them. But, to the Egyptians, this word simply meant that the people were from the east. So, if they were truly from Canaan, then they were technically Asiatic. The word Hyksos comes from the Egyptian expression Hekkal Khazwet, which simply means the rulers of foreign lands. This phrase can be found on the Turin list, The phrase first appeared as early as the late Old Kingdom and referred to various Nubian leaders. It can also be found on Middle Kingdom documents to refer to the Semitic-speaking leaders of Syria and Canaan. In this usage, it probably referred specifically to the leaders of these areas, and not to the people under their rule. So, the kings, but not the subjects. And, you should know by now how language morphs over time. At one time, it was thought that the word was Greek, derived from Egyptian, but this theory has been since disproven. The basis of the disproof is mostly that it does not follow the rules of written Greek. Either way, whether Greek or Egyptian, it's thought to have come to mean King Shepherd. Language morphing yet again. It's this sense that Manetho used it in his history, but using it to refer to shepherd kings may not be correct. Other than Manetho, the translation to the shepherd phrase cannot be found anywhere else. Manetho limited his use of the word to the 15th dynasty rulers only, not the 14th. For the sake of clarity, and since it's consistent with modern research, I'm using the word Hyksos to describe all of the Canaanites while they lived in Egypt during the period, regardless of dynasty. In the 20th century, and that's AD, German Egyptologist Wolfgang Helck proposed that the Hyksos were part of a massive and widespread Hurrian and Indo-Aryan migrations into the Near East. The Hurrians were a Bronze Age people from what is today northern Iraq, Iran, and southeastern Turkey. In his theory, the Hyksos were part of a Hurrian empire that spread over much of western Asia during the period, He posited that they arrived in Egypt as a conquering force, riding in on chariots. This theory has since lost all support. He then came up with a new theory that they were still Hurrians, but arrived via sea. This theory, just like his other, was never adopted. But just in case you run across it, now you know. The Hyksos were most likely Semites who originated from the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, on a Stele, Kamos, who was the last king of the Theban 17th dynasty, refers to Apepe, a 15th dynasty Hyksos ruler, as a chieftain of Retjenu. Retjenu was the ancient Egyptian name for Canaan in Syria. It is this stele that provides the strongest direct evidence for their homeland. Another 15th dynasty Hyksos king was Kion whose name is thought to be of Amorite origin, and closely related to their word Hahanu. And Hahanu is a name consistently found on a Syrian king list, and generally thought to translate to the phrase remote ancestor. There are several other Hyksos king names that follow the same general pattern, and point towards a Canaanite origin. An offshoot of the theory claims that the people from Canaan have maintained trade, diplomatic ties, and even a real international cooperation essentially between the rulers of the various Canaanite city-states and the rulers of Egypt, to the point that during the early 13th dynasty, the foreigners had broad, essentially free access into Egypt. And with this, many of them rose to high positions in the administration of the country. This theory, at least on its surface, seems to link Abram's journey and the eventual rise of Joseph in the Egyptian government. And that trade between the peoples? Remember, that's how the young boy ended up there in the first place. The Canaanites did not arrive to Egypt empty-handed. They brought several technological innovations to the country. These changes included new methods of bronze working and pottery, new breeds of livestock, and new crops. In warfare, They introduced the horse and chariot, the composite bow, the improved recurve bow, improved arrowheads, various kinds of swords and daggers, a new type of shield, armored shirts, the metal helmet, and improved battle axes. That's a whole host of improvements, and this military technology would help to explain how these immigrants would gain a foothold in the established Egyptian society. They also brought bits of their native culture like musical instruments. Finally, parts of their language became embedded in the native speak. Another theory concerning the Hyksos that has since come into disfavor is how they came into power in the region. This discarded theory is that the Hyksos were northern hordes who swept through Canaan and Egypt, riding fast chariots, defeating all who got in their way. The theory likely originated with Manetho, who wrote that the appearance of the Hyksos in Egypt was as an armed invasion that met little resistance. They then would subdue the country by military force. He wrote that the Hyksos burnt Egyptian cities, destroyed temples, and led women and children into slavery. Now, this theory has been displaced by the opposite, and that is that the Hyksos achieved power through a slow, gradual conquest meaning a crawling infiltration of what were possibly migrating nomads, or maybe semi-nomads. As nomads, they were either herders or traders, or maybe some of both. Either way, they ended up settling in the rich agricultural land of the Delta. While the Egyptian rulers of the 13th dynasty were preoccupied with domestic famine and plagues, they were too weak to stop the new migrants from entering and settling in Egypt. Over time, the Hyksos could have finally gained power through a slow takeover of control of the country, in a piecemeal fashion. Supporters of the peaceful takeover theory point out that there is little evidence of battles or wars in general, at least during this period. They also maintained that the chariot probably didn't play any relevant role, as this would be why no traces of chariots have been found at the Hyksos capital of Avaris despite extensive excavations. After settling, the Hyksals could have achieved power quickly by inserting a head of government into a weak organization, a sort of bloodless coup. This certainly sounds familiar, but keep in mind that both the fast, conquering chariot theory and the slow takeover by nomads may both be true. The initial rule of the 14th dynasty may have been the slow takeover, And, we do know that the 15th expanded their territory via military conquest, and since it was the primary war machine of the time, they certainly used chariots. When they finally did gain a foothold, and after they established control of the northern portion of the country, the independent native rulers in Thebes do seem to have reached a practical peace with the Hyksos rulers of the 15th dynasty. This included transit rights through Hyksos-controlled Middle and Lower Egypt and the ability to graze their livestock in the fertile delta. More on that peaceful coexistence in a bit. While they were in the region, the Hyksos slowly adopted many parts of the Egyptian culture. Researchers from uncovered artifacts note that the Hyksos, during the 15th dynasty, began to have the same jewelry and artistic practices as the native Egyptians. Seriously, I bet you didn't know that archaeologists could use uncovered jewelry to determine cultural adoption. But it does make sense. A few even proposed that the Hyksos began to adopt some of the Egyptian religious practices. And before you question that thought, just think back to the golden calf the Israelites surely didn't invent that idol from whole cloth. It was probably left over from their time in Egypt. In fact, the worshipping of bulls was common in many cultures, including Egypt. In this desert empire, the Apis bull was a comparable object of worship, which may have been what the Israelites were recreating in the wilderness. The Hyksos also adopted Egyptian royal and administrative titles, But, the native Egyptians continued to view the Hyksos as non-Egyptian invaders, but they had come to accept their rule over certain parts of the land. The names, the order, and even the total number of 15th dynasty rulers is not completely known. The names do appear in hieroglyphs on monuments and small objects such as jar lids. But, the names that are written are lacking the proper Egyptian diction for a leader, so, in many cases, it's not possible to know if one, or two, or several people are being written about. And the later writers are not consistent, not Manetho, Apion, Josephus, or the Turin list. More on Apion in a minute. The understanding of how the Hyksos came into power continues to develop as more artifacts are found. Recent archaeological finds, and by recent, I mean in the 21st century, may show that the Hyksos' 15th dynasty was already in existence at least by the mid-13th dynasty reign of Pharaoh Sobekhotep IV. And this is a bit different from the earlier thought that the Hyksos were merely present. So, not just present, but organized as a society, and possibly operating independently from the native Egyptians. There are some that argued the reality for the Hyksos at the time lay somewhere in the middle, meaning that while the Hyksos controlled the Delta region administratively, the Thebans were too busy mining gold and profiting off the Red Sea trade to care. Essentially, Lower Egypt and Thebes functioned autonomously and shared limited contact with each other. When they were eventually driven out of Egypt, All traces of their occupation were erased. To be clear, there are no surviving Egyptian records that document the history of the period from the Hyksos perspective. The only records to be found are those of the native Egyptians who evicted the foreign occupiers. Some researchers believe that the native Theban rulers were incentivized to demonize the Hyksos rulers. And this would lead to the destruction of their monuments, Remember that history is not always written by the victors, but is sometimes written by those who remain. Later, the historic record gets really really interesting. 1st century, and that's AD, Roman Jewish historian Josephus dove into the parallels of Manetho's Egyptian history and the biblical account. Manetho in his history, written about 400 years prior to Josephus, so around 300 BC, mention not one, but two events similar to what's found in Exodus. When Josephus retold Manetho's story, he paired the biblical Israelite Exodus with Manetho's first Exodus. Manetho said this event was when about half a million Hyksos shepherd kings, or maybe captive shepherds, departed Egypt for Jerusalem. The mention of Hyksos identifies the first Exodus with the Hyksos period and Manitho placed the event in the 16th century BC. Manetho went on to claim that there was a second exodus-like event. This was when an Egyptian priest named Osiroseph led around 80,000 lepers in a rebellion against Egypt. But the word leper, at least in this case, isn't what we normally think of. It's not generally interpreted as literally referring to a disease, But in this case, to a strange and unwelcomed new belief, read religious system, a new faith. A later Greek-Egyptian writer named Apion, who lived around the turn of BC to AD, confusingly mixed the second exodus with the biblical exodus to the point that he claimed that the Egyptian priest changed his name to Moses, which of course was probably mistaken. To me, that's somewhat interesting. But what's more interesting about Appian is that he lived in Egypt from about 25 BC to 45 AD, which places him in the country when Christ, as an infant, was taken there by his parents to escape Herod's decree. But it's reasonably certain that their paths did not cross, as Appian was well known to despise Jews, to the point that later in life he was sent by the residents of Alexandria to Rome for an audience with the, fortunately one and only, Caligula. All of this to raise the emperor's ire against Jews, which didn't take much. Anyway, back to the Hyksos. So that's the history of the rise and rule of the Hyksos, at least from the perspective of the historic record. And recall that the books of Genesis and Exodus tell of how the Israelites came to Egypt and achieved power, but they are essentially silent on how they fell into disfavor, with the exception of the first half of Exodus chapter 1, and that passage is really vague, not naming names on either side. The only anchor is from verse 11 that reads, they built supply cities, Python, and Ramses for Pharaoh. I'll get to those cities at some later point. But we do know one thing from both the Old Testament and the outside historic records. The Israelites who may, or may not, have been one and the same as the Hyksos, were oppressed by the Egyptians, and did depart Egypt at some point. Which leaves me needing to answer the question, how is this departure found in the outside record? As you will recall, the Hyksos, during their 15th dynasty, slowly gained territory southward towards Thebes. Eventually, they would overtake the capital city of the native Egyptian 16th dynasty, but their rule of this city was short, somewhere between one and three years. During this period, the Thebans appear to have been vassals of the Hyksos, and this relationship can be seen in a curious little myth from the period. The story, which is found in later New Kingdom literature, has one of these Theban kings corresponding with his Hyksos contemporary in the north. The Hyksos leader was named Apepi. In the tale, Apepi sent a messenger to Thebes to demand that the Theban sport of spearing hippopotami cease. His reasoning was that the noise of these beasts was such that he was unable to sleep in Avaris, hundreds of miles and kilometers away. Now, the possible true rationale for the demand was likely that the Egyptian deity Set was thought of as part man, part hippopotamus, and that the Hyksos sought to lower his status. Now, historically, this story does give insight into how Egypt was a divided land, the area of direct Hyksos control being in the north, but the whole of Egypt possibly paying tribute to the Hyksos kings. After a short period of occupation, the Thebans revolted. This uprising would end up driving the Hyksos from Lower Egypt and began in the last few years of the Theban 17th dynasty. But the revolt against the Hyksos began slowly. First, there was diplomatic posturing, probably nothing more than simply exchanging insults with the Hyksos king. Then, there were military skirmishes against the Hyksos. In fact, the Theban ruler of the time apparently died from brutal head wounds, at least judging from his mummy. The last ruler of the Theban 17th dynasty, Kamos, is thought to have won the first significant victories against the Hyksos, but his military campaigns were not completely supported by all of those in Thebes. One uncovered text, tells of the misgivings the Theban ruler's council of advisors had when Kamos proposed acting against the Hyksos. Kamus argued that the Hyksos were a humiliating stain upon the holy land of Egypt. The counselors countered that they were fine with the status quo, and that the fight was not worth the risk. Kamus, though, was the ruler, and eventually got his way. He would sail north from Thebes and down the Nile at the lead of his army during the third year of his reign. In doing so, he surprised and overran the southernmost base of the Hyksos. Comus then led his army as far north as the outskirts of Avaris itself. But the city was not taken. The Thebans did, however, destroy the fields around it, an ancient Sherman. A Theban stele recounts how a courier from the Hyksos leader to an ally in Nubia was captured by the Thebans. The Hyksos leader was hoping the Nubians would actively side with him to pose a counteracting threat to the Thebans. But, with the messenger's capture, Kamos became aware of the plan and acted accordingly. He swiftly ordered a detachment of his troops to occupy an oasis in the Libyan desert, and by doing so, controlled and blocked the desert route between his two enemies. Comus then returned to Thebes for a long-awaited victory celebration. Even though his victory wasn't complete, and was actually really minor, and possibly only successful because the Hyksos were taken by surprise. But hey, if you've been subjugated for years, decades, especially when you were wrist-slapped for spearing hippopotami, any reason to party is a good reason to party. Comus died shortly afterwards, Possibly from wounds received in battle. The history of the next several years saw the advance of the Thebans against the Hyksos as the native Egyptians slowly gained territory from the Canaanite immigrants. And with this came the 18th dynasty of Egypt. Its first pharaoh, almost the first, continued the military campaigns against the Hyksos tomb carvings detail how several battles were necessary to dislodge the Hyksos from their capital of Avaris. The final battle, at least for control of the city, is recounted as King Amos riding to war in his chariot. For what it's worth, this is the first mention of the use of the horse and chariot by Egyptians. While fighting in the area of Avaris, he, of course aided by his troops, captured prisoners and killed an unknown number of Hyksos. Inscriptions show that he personally took many prisoners and gave a specific number, one man and three women, to one of his subordinates. These prisoners intended to be used as slaves. There's no mention of how many were taken by others under his command or given by him to other soldiers. The whole captured prisoners turned slaves part shows some alignment with Exodus. The actual fall of Avaris is merely a footnote in the Egyptian inscriptions. The actual date, at least from the historic record, is as of yet to be precisely determined. But it was likely during Amos' reign, which spanned from 1549 to 1524 BC. After the fall of Avaris, the tomb inscriptions note that the escaping Hyksos were pursued by the Egyptian army across the northern Sinai peninsula and into the southern Levant. Here, in the Negev Desert, at a fortified town known as Sharuin, there was apparently a three-year siege. It's unknown how long all of this, the retreat, the pursuit, the siege, everything, how long it all took which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll begin the tale of the New Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. And for those of you that haven't, seriously? You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening